Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and today my guest is Ken Go, CEO and founder of Deca Games. Now, if you don't know Deca Games, it's an indie game publisher that focuses purely on live operations. What they do in practice is that they take over old titles when the original developer doesn't want to support these titles anymore, but just also doesn't want to sunset these games either. So my perception before talking to Ken about Deca was that they take these old games and they just squeeze the lemon, fill them up with pop-ups and all kind of monetization features. But this couldn't be far from the truth. In this podcast, Ken will explain how they take over legacy titles and how they run live operations, how community, gut feeling, and analytics driven it is. In many ways, it actually reminds me of the way Supercell run, or at least ran live operations before. So recently, Deca Games was acquired by Embracer. And in this podcast, we'll also talk about the whole new growth that this acquisition will unlock for Deca Games. Overall, super interesting podcast. Uh, I, I really learned a lot uh, listening to Ken explain about his business model. So I suggest you take your time and listen to this fascinating episode. But before we jump into it, a major shout out to our amazing sponsors. We pretty much use just about every single product that uh, Iron Source offers. We're, we're completely integrated with the platform. Of course, the mediation products, all ad, ad products, and a company that can assist us in doing UA and monetization and all the uh, additional products that come along with it. It takes a lot of uh, headache away from us. It takes a lot of the hard, busy work off of our hands, having a kind of an all-in-one platform. You just heard Andrew Stone. He's the CEO at Random Logic Games, who use IronSource's platform to grow their games in the smartest way possible. If you want to grow like Random Logic, you can get the SDK on IronSource's website. That's ironsrc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies 
through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Hey, Ken, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wanted to do this podcast because I had a perception of DECA Games, which was absolutely wrong. And in fact, DECA Games is a truly unique company because the way you've grown, where you are currently and where you're heading is you've started from live ops. And now kind of like the next step for you will be new game development. So you didn't, like DECA Games didn't develop any new games start doing live ops for existing sort of a mature, somebody would call it over the hill or legacy titles, became really successful with that. And now is probably entering to starting a new game. So just absolutely unique. Nobody has done it before. Can you kind of start off with like maybe talking a little bit who you are and how did you get started with Deca Games? Sure. Yeah, so I'm the CEO founder of Deca Games. I've been in the industry for, I think, almost 14, 15 years now. Um, and my entire career has been direct to consumer in the games industry, uh, mostly live operations of free-to-play games. Um, I've been lucky to, to have been a part of you know, many of the really early pioneers of free-to-play in, in the Western market. So, you know, I dabbled at EA for my my first stint in games, then to small startups like Outspark, uh, Playdom, and then eventually being a, one of the early employees at Kabam, before it was called Kabam. And at, at Kabam, I was the uh, executive producer for Kingdoms of Camelot, which was one of their first flagship titles. Uh, I eventually moved into a more central role, running uh, a central department of, of for live operations, which at Kabam at the time. It was basically like a, a sales team that was in charge of helping the, the game teams build best practices for their individual studios as they scaled up to over a thousand people and also basically helping them make more money in their games. Uh, so it was at Kabam live operations really meant one thing, which was pretty much try to make as much money off the game as possible. Um, but then, you know, from there, um, I had the opportunity to set up my own company, which was always a dream of mine. Um, and I, I evolved my thinking towards live operations. And I realized that there was this, this niche in the marketplace that was, that was getting created. And I only realized that because Kabam was going through this interesting um, evolution over time. So Kabam you know, started out you know, very much focused on these Forex strategy games. And then eventually uh, they were lucky enough to have a huge hit called... Um, Marvel Contest of Champions, which was you know, basically four or five times larger than all of the rest of their games uh, combined. So that put them in an interesting uh, situation where they needed to, to focus. Um, they said that it, it really didn't make sense for them to put almost any time into these older titles, which for any other developer would have been really great products and really great businesses. Um, but they had such a big hit and they had such big ambitions that they said that, okay, well, we need to focus on building new products just as big as Contest of Champions and focus more efforts into the, to the growing business of, of, that, of that game. 
So what they did was they found partners to take over these older titles and they then sold them off and then the other partner just continued the operations of those of those games. And that really was what triggered the, the idea for DECA in, in the first place where you know, it's something that I had never really thought about before, something that I don't think most people thought about was that, okay, actually you can sell games to other people uh, and that those games could actually do better with the with the new developer than actually they could in the the original developer's care, um, and and that's just because of alignment of interests and the focus of the operations. So when I saw that, I, I realized that I was uniquely positioned based on my experience to to try to tackle this opportunity in the industry. And at that time, you know, this was in 2015, 2016. This you know the industry was getting super competitive. This was just at the beginning of the t um, you know when everybody started to just be pouring lots of money into UA. And everybody at that time said, okay, the top of the charts are fixed. Nobody's going to ever make another top grossing title. And, you know, you need to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on UA to be successful. And, you know, I saw that and I, you know, I kind of agreed, you know, and that's not totally untrue. Although we've seen now today that there are different ways to be successful. I said that, you know, in my back of my mind, I said, okay, well, I need to lean into the things that I'm strong at, uh, but also try not to go head to head with the, you know, the biggest titans in the industry. So I decided to tackle a niche uh, focusing on uh, live operations of these older titles. And, and that's basically how DECA got started. And we named the company DECA because we wanted to have a very long-term mindset to the business. So basically every game that we took over, we wanted to last another decade. And so that meant that we had needed to evolve the, the type of live operations that we were doing for products. And so instead of just purely squeezing the life out of the games and try to make so much money off of the existing, you know, couple, uh, couple high value players, we decided that, you know, because of the way that the model was going to work, our, our value add would be in, well, obviously trying to make more money with the product, but doing it in a way that it was long-term sustainable that we didn't need to be on a particular timeline. We could run these products for 10 years. And if you're thinking on a 10-year timeline, that it, it allows you to take different decisions. So it doesn't matter if you're making an extra 100 bucks this quarter or next quarter. What really matters is that the, the, the loyal players and the community that, that has loved your game for many years continues to stay and continues to get engaged and then has a good experience. And that the, that experience overall is what keeps them around for a decade mm. and you know that was what that's how we've taken the different spin in the whole concept of, of what i wanted to do and what deca was was you know go into these untapped potential in, in the games industry and that's that's what i really enjoy you know i i never considered myself the the most creative person uh, i probably would be one of the worst people to build a new game by myself but what I really enjoyed was thinking about the, the meta game of the industry and figuring out where the unique opportunities are still for the, the people who are just getting started, uh, who, who don't have huge budgets and trying to tackle those. And then also bringing the right people together to try to tackle um, that particular problem. Mm. So you said you were, your dream was, was always to set up a company. Was that before you like, was DECA game like something that we saw an opportunity like, hey, this is the type of company I can set up? Or did the dream to set up a company kind of come in together with the idea for DECA games? Yeah, I think everybody who goes into startups 
has some idea in the back of their head that hey, it would be great. It would be nice if I could do this myself. So, you know, when I was in the startup mode, it was kind of my, my university education of how things should be done, how things should not be done. And I formulated my own opinion on the right and wrong way to do things. And that is definitely still evolving to this day. Um, but I never knew until I experienced it firsthand that, that, you know, you could take over other people's games and, mm -hmm the whole concept of DECA, that it evolved and it was very opportunistic when we got started. So we had the opportunity to take over a product from Kabam. I felt I was also, you know, I have a, I have a family and, you know, and I have three <laughs> kids now. So when you're, you know, it's always one of those things that goes in the back of every entrepreneur's mind is like, Hey, is this, is this too big of a risk? Should I be taking this risk now? You know, is this okay for me to do versus, you know, the, the easiest thing is just to take another job. Um, but I, I felt this was the right opportunity for me because one, I felt like there was a pretty big opportunity and two, I didn't really want to take another job <laughs> and, and three, it, it fit my background. It fit me really well. And I, you know, I felt like it was, it wasn't like I was taking a huge risk. Uh, it was a, a very thoughtful and, and metered and uh, measured risk because I wasn't, going into something that I didn't know anything about. And I wasn't doing something that actually required tons of capital to get started. So, you know, I, I thought it was a very, very reasonable thing to do. Yeah. And you didn't raise any money. So you basically, this opportunity just came forward from, from Kabam, like one of, was it so that one of their portfolio titles was kind of going into this, what you would call like a live ops mode or kind of like automated automated live operations and you basically raised your hand and said, Hey, I can run this and I will set up my separate company. And you just had a great relationship with the leadership of Kabam. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I, I was part of the team that was helping transition the, their legacy products to new partners. So it was my, you know, my team had been uh, basically fully running the live operations of those games. So it was my team's uh, responsibility then to, to train up the new partners to take over those products. So as part of that, you know, while this process was happening, you know, this is like six months, a year long process, I started thinking about it myself. I was like, okay, well, what am I gonna do next? I mean, I was having this conversation with the leadership of Kabam because they no longer needed our team any any longer. So we were trying to think about, okay, well, what, what would be the next role for me? And I really didn't see much of an opportunity because they were then going to focus on new game development again. Um, so I said, okay, well, what can I do? And then I was lucky enough that there was basically one product that hadn't been earmarked for anything else. So it was basically the, the, you know, the bastard stepchild that was left in the corner because it was a, uh, a browser game. Mm -hmm. And browser had been left for dead by Kabam many, many years earlier. Uh, it was a game was called Realm of the Mad God. And I had never worked on the product, but I already, I knew the product by reputation and, and everybody in the company uh, that had been with the company for a while, kind of, they, they loved the game. They really liked it, but they knew that it, it was this kind of odd, odd uh, product that didn't really fit our portfolio. And I had never worked on it myself, but I knew that it had a good community. That, that was always the reputation in the, in the industry that was like, people were hardcore about that game and it looks very simple. It's a very, it's a eight bit uh, pixel mm -hmm. art uh game so it looks very casual but in the heart it's actually a hardcore mmo and i was lucky enough to to have a really good relationship with kevin i had done a lot uh, kevin the the founder of kabam and i had i think i'd done a lot for kabam over my my history with them so you know i, I approached them and i said you know is this something that you could help me support me with 
and let's work out some kind of arrangement where I, you know, I, I license this product from you guys and, um, and let's see what happens. And luckily they, they were, I can only thank, thank uh, Kevin and the leadership so much for giving me my start. Yeah. And um, so we, we chatted before and what I found it, what I found was, was really interesting is your approach to lot to run life services for these these uh these older titles because on the surface when you think about deca games and you're like well it's a it's a service where you can give your game and they kind of squeeze it out like you have a certain type of perception of it but actually your approach to live operations is is very different so can you talk a little bit about that yeah you know I, I, like i said like my whole philosophy on live ops has evolved over the course of the last decade and it's still continuing to evolve and has been colored by the different games that I've had to work on. And I think DECA has, has been mainly colored by our first product, like I was mentioning, Realm of the Mad God. So when we first got started with this product, we were a very small team, so we didn't have a lot of resources. Um, so we needed to be very judicious with the way that we operated that title because well first of all it was the, our only product so when you only have one product you, you can't mess it up uh and you know there was many times where we, we thought we messed it up but but luckily enough it, it wasn't that bad um but when we got started into the product we knew that what was going to be very important was learning what the players wanted and trying to come up with an uh, a plan a strategy in order to give them give that to them uh, because what our main value, the main asset that we had was the players in the community that already existed in the product. Uh, we knew that over the lifetime of the product, there had been many people who had come through and played the game and it still loved it and were kind of loosely attached, but they, 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 they churned out or they were just lurking behind the scenes and waiting for something to, to come back to the game for. So we took the strategy of ingraining ourselves with the community um, before we did anything with the product. So we started to uh, talk with the players very early on in the process, even before we officially announced that we were going to take it over. And from there, we got a good level of feedback from them of kind of that one, they were really happy and excited that that somebody was going to make their game last and that they wanted to help support us. And so when we did that, they the community rallied behind us, really gave us a lot of support, and they basically made it go viral. So from there, they called all their friends back into the game. Mm. We did a whole bunch of you know, community outreach. We funneled the whole community into the, a, Reddit, uh, a subreddit that had existed. And through all this activity and our community outreach and giving them uh, a message that, they, that really resonated with them, uh, the, the subreddit went, went basically to the top of the of trending, uh, top trending subreddit of the day. And that was kind of a rallying call for the whole community to come back to the game. And so the game doubled basically overnight after we took it oh, over. Wow. Yeah. So both, you know, both the you know, activity, the, a lot, uh, the player activity doubled, the monetization doubled, and that set us on our path. And what we realized was one, the community had a lot of power and a lot of um, excitement, untapped potential, and that we needed to give the you know, every time that we would release something that the players really liked, more people would come back. And if we did something that they didn't like or we went too long without engaging them properly, then the activity numbers would decrease. Mm. So we said that we learned from that and we then said, okay, well, how do we, one, figure out what's the best way to figure out what they want, number one. 
and the answer was just to ask them and, and to create a direct channel to the players and to create a structure where we are communicating more regularly. And two, you know, how do you get that in the cycle that it's regular, regular enough so that we have um, new things to do with the players all the time and the players don't feel like they're getting bored. And, you know, focusing in, we then focused in on the existing player base instead of trying to bring in new players. And that has been very helpful for us because it, it changes the way that you, um, you don't, again, you, think, you can think very long-term because you know that the player has been spending or playing the game for multiple years. So if you're, you can afford to decide to delay something a little bit, as long as it increases the quality and increases the, the excitement of the players and increase, in the end, uh, gives them something that they really want. So we then kind of leaned into this idea of super fans. So these, these people who are so in love with your game that they're going to do anything and everything to help you out and get you know, that will fanboy uh, everything that you do. So really try to supercharge them and, and really engage them and uh, figure out what they really wanted and give it to them. And so that set us down the path now of saying, okay, like instead of thinking like quarter by quarter or month by month and putting sales targets behind the, the PMs on the product, what we say is think long-term, make sure don't do anything that's going to, that the players are going to kind of revolt against. Um, the most important thing for us is, is retention uh, and that's long-term retention. So ensure that the players are gonna be here uh, a decade from now. And also what really matters to us is the quality of service. So in, in that becoming more holistically minded. So when we were at Kavan, we were very much focused all purely on revenue numbers and that mm -hmm. was it. But once we had a small team of generalists, uh, it became more about this holistic experience from the, the, from the fanatical uh, point of view. So, okay, how is my customer service? How, is the, how am I interacting with the developers? How is the, pro the content that's getting released? How are my questions about all of this stuff getting answered? And do I feel like my friends and my alliance mates and all the people who I'm socially interacting with in the game are happy as well. Mm. So there's more of um, a uh, balanced approach, I would say, and one that is more long-term minded. I, I love it how you, how you started by bringing in the community and basically you kind of got a whole community behind you. Like we're working on this together. Let's bring this game back to where it was. Let's make it big. And through that kind of pushed the game forward. So let me ask you this question. Like what was, what was your starting team? Like as you took over um, realm of the mad God and you started doing this community outreach and, and so forth, like what, who were there a part of you a part in addition to yourself? And yeah, there was a couple of people that I recruited from my Kabam days who, who were, uh, you know, at the same position as me, like no longer needed in the, in their older roles and had been just um, figuring out what the next thing was that they needed to do. So it was basically like product and live ops people uh, to get started. Uh, I pulled in uh, on the engineering side to help get the product back up to speed. And luckily I, I knew, I was lucky enough to know some of the people who were still at Kabam who were still operating the product. And we contracted a couple of people to help us in a transition period mm. to move that product over to us and basically unwind some of the platform that was Kabam's and put hook us into something new that, that could allow us to work independently. So so how big is the team? Like eight? Uh, it was, 
it started as just two people that <laughs> we right. started very, very small, but then the, I think I'd say like the, the rough size of like was roughly between five and eight people throughout mm-hmm. the first year. Mm-hmm. And basically you're talking, we're talking about like, um, client engineers, product managers, community manager. Um, I mean, at that end. time, yeah. yeah, I mean, at that time it was, everybody was wearing many different hats. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. Of you course. had full, full stack, you know, you had full stack products, product managers doing community and doing, you know, live operations and building features and engineers basically doing the same, you know, we had like a DevOps slash backend slash client, all, all people kind of just doing whatever it took. And, and that is that cult that created the culture. I think that we have today where it's no job is too big or too small for us things that seem impossible um, actually are not that not as difficult as they seem. And it's things mm-hmm. that are super small that people think are unimportant actually could be very, very crucial. So community was, was really important part. Did you have a community? Like when did you realize that community is such a big thing? Like, was it something that, uh, that came to you during Kabam? Because when I think about like, I've, I've played all the, like not all of them, but most of the Kabam games, even back mm-hmm. from browser games, the edge worlds, the uh, Kingdoms of Camelot, the um, Dragons of Atlantis that had a huge co- community um, revolt. Yeah. Like, <laughs> were those kind of like the other uh, learning experience for you or like, where, where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, I think we learned a lot of what not to do <laughs> at, at, during those times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely ways that you can really make a community angry by not listening to them, by doing things that they're completely opposed to. But at the same time, you sometimes you have to just do things that the community is against. Mm-hmm. And I think I never realized that during those times of how there is a better way and that there is, um, you can do the exact same thing, but just do it slightly differently with better community management. And then it will be received totally differently by the yeah. database. Um, so uh, I would say that at Kaban, we learned that the, the community was uh, very vocal but we never understood at the time that um, what were the right ways to do it. And once we started DECA, we learned it that uh, I guess we were very lucky to learn it very early on that the, the, how important and powerful the players were and how they could be an asset. And so because we were wearing many different hats and you know, basically the people making the decisions on how to prioritize what gets built, what doesn't get built, what gets fixed or what doesn't get fixed, were the people who are interacting with the players. There was such a small uh you know feedback loop that the players could say something and went straight to the decision maker and that decision maker then could make a decision to fix it right away and that created a really nice uh feedback loop for both the players and for the team so the, the players could say hey i made this request and it got implemented right away and they felt very much appreciated and then the with that the 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 community would then reinvest into the product and then the the leadership could then see that okay well this is actually worth it because it's actually making a difference mm-hmm. And since then we've grown in the number of people, you know, we're over 150 people now. Wow. And so that, that, that tie, that direct tie is, is definitely different than it was back then. But because we, that is part of now of our culture and part of our, our best practice, you know, we, we put a lot more emphasis on community managers and what their feedback are. And we put them in a position to be successful. I think a lot of companies, they think of community management as people who just, you know, excite, engage in a forum. No. Um, but we, we utilize them as a weapon. So community managers are going to take all of the hard work that we did building up features and content, and they're going to make sure that the players engage with it, are excited about it, 
and are going to receive it positively. And in case they have you know, negative feedback, they at least say, uh, allow the community to be heard and let, let them feel like they, they had a voice. But in the end, we, we are deciding uh, what's best for the product with all of the all of the information, not you know, not only thinking about just the community, but thinking about what's what's good for the long term. Yeah, yeah, and and you talked about the uh, the sort of a three pillars of decision making, which is funny because it's exactly what what like if I go to my like old old presentations talking about live ops, like from like 2012 and 2013 and so forth. I was always saying like, there's a three, three channels, the way, you know, you do your next update, what you're looking at. Like, first of all, you're looking at analytics. Of course, you're looking at the numbers that are coming in and that is one channel. Then the second one is you're looking at, uh, you're looking at the community. So what are the messages coming from the community? How did they receive the last thing? How they, how, what they're asking for. And part of the community is also looking at, you know, customer tickets. Like there are some problems and some things that are coming in. So, so you're looking at that. And then the third element is, is that you are trusting your gut feeling. Like you as a, as a, like the whole team is playing the game. Everybody is engaged. So it's an important avenue of decision-making. And I think you kind of refer to the same type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we call it a triangulation of different data points. So I think you can never be too reliant on any one of those those uh, three pillars. Uh, if you rely too much on data, you know, the data can sometimes be flawed and it's also uh, time sensitive. So the the impact of the the data might not be seen in a short period of time. It might take many years to actually see the impact or many months. Um, and also gut. If you're relying only on your gut, you're only uh, you're only utilizing the one person who's making that decision's history and his, you know, whatever he can perceive, which is also limited. And um, the players, the players are notoriously uh, asking for things that some that are not good for business. So they they typically say, "Hey, why don't you make everything for free, or why don't you uh, make it super easy?" And they don't realize that sometimes that one, you know, a game needs to make money in order to survive into that making everything easy for everybody has an impact on the players that, that actually want it to be hard and want it to be difficult. And it's actually really that fun to, to be super easy. So you, we have to balance all these three different pillars. There is never gonna be a, a uh, I don't think it's proper and I don't think it's healthy to only take one or the other. And we are lucky enough to have a, a lot of people who have been running products for, for many, many years, longer than I have who can pull from a vast uh, experience level across many different types of games over a long period of time and who have been who, who have been through the bumps and bruises of making these mistakes. And I think it's only through those mistakes that you can, uh, you can learn and you can evolve and you can uh, forecast the things that could go wrong by either trusting these two other pillars uh, too much. I a hundred percent agree. I, I see it like, as a con like as a concept it's so easy just look at these three channels and make the decision based on those but the decision making is actually the hardest part because they are all of these three things sometimes drive you to different directions and it's your own experience and your own past failures like i can like even personally just going through all the all the the all the stuff that i've done in live ops that are that just you know harmed the the the, the community but on the other hand, made more money. You know, they were celebrated at the time, but on the long term, they were poor. 
like all those experiences are really important because sometimes, you know, going for the revenue, like I think Kabam was, was pretty much that kind of a mindset at certain point that where they were just super revenue focused. And in the end, what that caused is actually, you know, harming their community and their long-term player base. So, and then you have companies that are all focused on community, you know, the riots and, and those kind of, those, those kind of companies, if they have a insanely large player base, then that's great. But if they don't, that kind of approach is actually harming you from, from growing your game because you're just not generating enough revenue and you're being guided by the player base and you're almost afraid to make any kind of a, any kind of tests in your game because you have such a, you know, you have a community that is basically, you know, keeping you at check and, and almost driving the development, like forcing you to do certain things because that's the, the presence you've set. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. I think that's the, it's a very common mistake where you, you get too scared of, of uh, messing with the community that you don't innovate any longer, mm -hmm. but you need to, I think, again, like the, the main thing you should remember when building up a community team is the community team is not only there to give you the feedback from the player base, but also to drive the change that you want to make in the game. Exactly. Exactly. And test different ideas with the, with the player base and, and kind of bring these ideas forward. It, it's, it's sometimes funny, like even my experience from certain games that had a very, you know, vocal community, like we would test new big features that were coming in, even just at a discussion level. Like I would just have a discussion with, you know, the guild leaders and so, and so forth, kind of like, hey, we're coming up with this. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And when they had an opportunity to voice their opinion, they felt just so much more powerful and, and more accepting towards the new features that were, you know, quite grindy that were coming in, but, you know, they kind of accepted it in advance and it was just important to, to actually address the, the, the most competitive player, like the most competitive guilds. And if they accepted, then the rest of the community were fine with it. Like they were kind of like the opinion leaders uh, inside the game. So I, I definitely uh, understand your kind of strategy. Um, all right, let's let's move on to to the growth of Deca Games. So you start off with five to eight people, and you're currently you said 120. Uh, about 150 now. 150. All right, it grew by 30 during this discussion. So, <laughs> no, just so um, so, what like how did you how did you grow? Like how did you get these new games in? And more importantly, how did you select which games to take under Deca Games? Like, how do you know that you can sustain and possibly even grow this game? Yeah, uh, so the first question was, how did we find these titles? Uh, just basically using our network and, and continuing to go to talk with the, the developers. And, and luckily, I think we built a good reputation in the industry. Uh, and it's still, I think, one of the least sexiest parts of the business. So there's not a ton of people that were doing this uh, a couple years ago. So we were... We were early in, and I think we were right in tackling this niche. Uh, I think since then, more people have figured it out and have started to come in. So there's a few more competitors. Um, but still, I think amongst all of them, people know us, know DECA. They, they know that we have the capability to do things the right way. And I think a lot of people, they worry about their players and trusting the, their products to a good partner. And so they come to us because they, they know that uh, we have this time, the long-term mindset, and we're not going to abuse the the products that they've spent a lot of time and a lot of the players that they've they've built up in their fans over the years. Um, uh, how we 
so that's how we we found the products yeah it's just by talking how do you evaluate like that's an important how do we evaluate yeah so number one thing on our criteria is sustainability Mm -hmm. so it it does a product do we see ourselves running this product for the next five to ten years Um, and so we will look at the financials primarily to get that that sense of okay well how does what is the trends of the the revenues and the player base um sometimes we have to take a leap of faith on what the future is going to hold but pretty much we we take a very conservative view typically so uh, you know luckily with the products that we've taken so far they've been many years of track record and history so we have data that can that can tell us what to expect and where, where it should be heading in the near future. Um, based on that, I think the, the, then we need to find a partner that's willing to work with us as well. So if we have a product that's, you know, that's potentially open for sale or for a partnership, we need, both sides need to be able to dance. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to find a common ground in terms of valuation. So that's kind of the, the second criteria. Um, and then, uh, the third criteria is around complexity. So one of the hardest things in our business is the transition period of moving the knowledge and the infrastructure from one developer to another, uh, to us. So we do that evaluation in the very beginning to say, okay, if the product is sustainable, if it's a good business, if it has a strong community and we think the players are going to be around for many years, how challenging is it going to be for us to operate this title going forward? And we take a very practical approach when it comes to that. So if you know, it's not, we don't get turned off by um, complexity. Uh, it's, it's almost assumed, but it just needs to be worth the, the, the squeeze that, that we're having to put into it. So there's different sizes of different products. There's, um, there's different types of complexity. There's, you know, technical complexity, there's um, server complexity, and then there's uh, product complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as those things work out, so if we believe that it's sustainable, if we believe it's manageable risk and it's worth the effort to put into it, then we say, okay, well, then, then it's pretty open. We, we're open to all different types of genres uh, as long as we feel like it's, a, it's sustainable. Um, as long as we feel good about the partner that we're working with, that they're gonna be a good partner to move the product over to us. Um, and that's basically it. So what do you, uh, when you say sustainable, what what are the sort of a metrics that you're looking at sustainability? Do you look at like day 30 retention or day 90 retention? Do you look at the uh, organics versus paid user acquisition? Like what are, what are you looking at? It depends on the product. Um, every product has different things that make it uh, sustainable. So you have these kind of core RPGs that are like super um, hardcore in, in a way. And it's mainly, you know, month to month over month over month attention. If you, you know, if people are, if people from, if DAU or some activity metric is, is drastically declining, you probably expect it to decline. We hope that, uh, expect it to continue to decline. Uh, we hope that we come in, we can stem that, that, that churn and, and stabilize it. Uh, a bit so we, we believe that we pretty strongly believe that we can affect the, the change into the product but we don't bank on it in order to to make an investment uh, we take a very conservative approach from that regard and that allows us to think more long term so if, if we don't we have to be very picky in the products that we take over we can't if we if we put too much pressure um, if we, we try to overreach the type of products that we take over then it then forces the team to think shorter term and puts the business in a, in a difficult situation. 
but also, you know, there's different, you know, we have games like Zombie Catchers, which is a very casual action platformer, which is, uh, but also very beloved uh, by the player base. It has different game design, uh, different long-term retention. And that type of product though is, it, it works because uh, it has this organic funnel. It has tons of players coming into that product every single month. Uh, it's super viral. Uh, so I can only imagine that, you know, most of the people are coming in because they've been told by their friends to come into the game and also good placement in the app stores. And so we optimize that quite a bit too. But, you know, those are very different types of products. You know, we have these super core RPGs that are all about content creation and uh, retention of the existing player base. And then you have these uh, more casual, organically uplifted uh, products that uh, the existing player base is still very important to us. But we also have to layer on top of that this more, you know, PM optimization of this top of the funnel, um, yeah, top of the funnel funnel uh, to get more players into the door. So, so basically, when you look at sustainability, you look at the game currently, uh, not currently, you look at the game's past years, perhaps, and you assume that if we don't, if we're not able to, if we're, if we're unable to improve any of the metrics, is this game still sustainable as it is uh, going forward? And, and as you said, there are different games, some rely on more organic, some rely on long term retention and so forth. So that's your kind of like a conservative approach rather than looking at a game and be like, all right, this is okay, but here are, you know, 15 things that we can improve. And this will most likely improve the, uh, the run rate by say 15 to 30%. Like you don't take that approach. You rather assume that you won't be able to make any improvements and then be positively surprised when you're actually able to make the improvements, uh, looking at everything from app store optimization to product optimization. Am I correct? Yeah. I mean, we still do the, the evaluation to see if there's upside opportunity, mm -hmm. but then we, we basically create like high, medium, low Got scenarios, it. right? So the base case assumes not much is changing uh, in the product and basically a very conservative approach. Mm -hmm. And then the upside potential is based on, hey, these are the things that we think we can improve. And maybe it's just you know, 15 to 30% or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then we're pleasantly surprised when that happens. And then the worst case, you know, again, like the low case is, hey, if we, did, if we didn't, if we were not successful in, in whatever we did, would we still be happy with this product? And then then it, that comes a gut check of to say, you know, which, is, which of these outcomes is more likely to happen? And are we comfortable with the, with the risk relative to what we're investing into it? Got it. And um, so, okay, that, that's, that's clear. That's clear. I thought just ran out of my head. I was, I was about to ask something, but um, okay. So have you, okay. So as, as you've grown your, your, um, your portfolio, how, how many games do you have currently in operation? Uh, 10 now. 10 games. Oh, wow. Okay. That's great. And, um, and, and you're kind of like entering that next stage. So you've become very successful at what you do. So finding games, taking them over, and it might take somewhere between one to six months, I assume, to take over a game, like depending on the complexity. And so you've been able to do that consecutively, more and more games, your organization has grown. Um, you're based out of, you're based out of Europe, am I correct? Yeah, mostly we're a distributed team. So we have people working now in 22 different countries, but oh, wow. uh, headquarters is in Berlin. Nice. Nice. All right. And, um, and like, what's the next stage? Because you've been successful, very successful in running live operations and growing your business. And after the Embracer acquisition that happened uh, a few months ago, um, probably early, early this year, if I'm correct. 
that that brought a lot of um that basically grew your war chest to do next thing so is the next thing for you to continue doing what you've been doing and kind of taking bigger and bigger games or are you looking also to start developing new games which would be totally new for for your company yeah yeah so we joined embracer in august of of last year so over the summer oh, wow. so it's been about six seven months and uh it's been a whirlwind uh six seven months for sure and so i you know i will I joined the group because I had bigger ambitions. I wanted, I saw some different opportunities in the industry that I thought were very interesting and uh, an evolution of what we were already doing. And Embracer historically for the people that don't know was mainly focused on premium and console uh, games, uh, premium PC and console games. And they had never done anything in free to play before DECA uh, uh, became part of the group. And we thought that there was a nice marriage, both Lars, the CEO, and I, we, we came together because there was this, um, they understood my business very well because it was very similar to the THQ Nordic business. Uh, and I saw them, I said, okay, they, they have all of the resources of a big company and all an ambition to grow mobile and free-to-play. And uh, it, they seemed like a very good partner that, that could help me accelerate what the, the, the strategy and these ideas that I had in the back of my mind of doing things more than just taking over legacy products. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to continue the, the live ops business, hopefully taking on a higher quantity of products and hopefully larger products with, with more resources. And that's why we've, we've staffed up and built up extra capacity in order to do more. But on top of that, uh, we added two <clears throat> two independent studios that are building their own uh, product as well in, in November of last year as well. So uh, a Thinking Ape and a Yugo Entertainment, uh, two Vancouver-based studios that they just happen to be both in Vancouver, but both are extremely uh, high-quality, talented, successful studios that have been doing this for over 10 years as well. Uh, a Thinking Ape is a 4X strategy developer, a 4, 4X strategy game developer who is now evolving those those games into a more mass market type mm -hmm. of product. Um, and Ayugo is, is best known for developing um, Walking Dead Road to Survival for Scopely. So they have oh, yeah, a really, yeah. they're, they're, they're one of the biggest, the most prolific work for hire teams in mobile, uh, having done stuff with Scopely, having done stuff with Warner Brothers. They also were the developer of Knights and Dragons with Gree. Oh, which which we ended up uh, acquiring later on after many many years. So there was like kind of a shared relationship there, and so with these two studios now, both studios have uh, games original IP in development. Um, we have a very decentralized organizational structure though, so they are autonomously uh, they're they're working on their own. I am you know loosely in touch with their strategy. I'm there to pressure test what their strategies are and their their plan, their execution strategy but they get to decide what they want to build uh, and we can collaborate and find synergies um, going forward. So we will probably most likely take over some of their products uh, over time when they're launching their new products. Uh, they may be looking for uh, new games to run. So if we are going out into the marketplace and we find a product that doesn't, that doesn't make sense for us, we can, we can shift it directly into one of the studios. And the idea over the next couple of years is to really grow the, the whole mobile and free-to-play strategy for Embracer, not only just via DECA, but for the, the entire uh, Embracer group overall. So in uh, just a couple of months ago, they announced a couple of big acquisitions as well. So Easy Brain, uh, which mm -hmm. is a, it's a very under the radar uh, company, 
but a really dynamic, uh, impressive business um, focused mostly on puzzle logic games. Um, they entered the group uh, just a, f a few months ago as well. And the idea now is to work with the best studios uh, who have really the same kind of long-term mindset towards wanting to build something bigger and create a way that we can collaborate with each other, and, but also give them create creative autonomy and this basically the best of both worlds where they get the resources and security of a bigger company, mm -hmm. but they get the independence and autonomy and flexibility that you get as a small independent. So that's kind of the, the structure that we're, we're creating. And as part of Embracer, which happens to be you know, a publicly traded company, we get the benefit of you know, access to capital from the public markets, mm -hmm. the, the benefits of using our shares as currency in order to incentivize everybody for the, to, to align the same interests. And I think that has been one of the big benefits I'd see from, from becoming part of the group. Whereas like as an independent company, as DECA by ourselves, we could have never thought about doing some of these bigger things. And this is also gonna evolve over time as new opportunities come along, we're constantly evaluating, okay, one, are these good, good people that we wanna work with for the mm -hmm. next decade or so? Do they have a interesting strategy that we think can be successful? And if so, let's see if they wanna join us. So that's now going to be a bigger, bigger initiative for me. So I'm kind of the, the torch bearer within the group for all mobile and free to play stuff. So I, I get to help out with all these different deals. And I, I'm ex super excited because I get to learn <laughs> from all of these amazing entrepreneurs. Now I never once have ever worked on a puzzle logic game now, but now I got to learn all about it and how high scale uh, UA is being done. And it's totally different from our on older business, which was, you know, live operations of these older titles. But like conversely, these, these other uh, studios that are now joining, they get to learn from us too. So mm -hmm. we have our strengths, they have their strengths. We think that as part of a bigger group, we should lean into our strengths and try to shy away from our weaknesses and collaborate where, where there is some opportunities to. Okay, so, so is it, so this is kind of like the similar model that Steelfront has. I mean, the, even the CEO's name is, is, is literally the, the Lars, the same thing and same, same stock exchange. So basically, bringing in studios together and then allowing like these centers of excellence to, to thrive. So for like, in your case, you're, you and space ape entered at the same time, you were the mobile developers and now they're building this sort of a centers center of excellence around your expertise, bringing more and more talented studios that have maybe a little bit of a different take, but same motivation, same, high quality of talent and, and um, same level of aspirations. And because the common goal, you're able to work together more efficiently and come up with, uh, and kind of kind of improve each other's business. Is that the, uh, the approach? Yeah, I think the high level strategies are very similar, mm -hmm. but the starting points are very different. Yeah. So Embracer is the already the biggest uh, gaming company in Europe. It's just based on its premium business. Uh, so it has this, already a huge diversity that I think Steelfront doesn't have at the moment. So St Steelfront started, I think, almost primarily as a mobile focused. Yeah, a little bit, uh, more, but yeah, mobile. Yeah, but I think my 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 perspective, my purview, my responsibility is something similar to Steelfront in a way. But we, as a destination, are interesting because at least the way that I look at it is that we have a very mature business, uh, not one of there's not a single company or single IP in our portfolio that accounts for more than 15% of the overall pie. And that's, that's even with, you know, Gearbox 
with Borderlands joining the group. Yeah. So it's super, super diversified. So uh, we are super long-term minded as well. So I think all of the entrepreneurs who joined Embracer are still with Embracer to this day. Um, and I like to say like the, I don't really know the inner workings of the other companies, but Embracer is one, I think when we are picky about who joins us, because again, it's not about ex like entrepreneurs coming into a group and exiting after a couple of years. Yeah. We expect people to be around for, you know, five, seven, 10 years going forward. You know, I have a seven year earnout on my deal. And nice. I fully intend, I fully intend to be there because I'm trying to build up, like it's very hard to do something interesting in over a couple of years. Yeah. Um, usually it, it takes time to build things and to do something really impactful. And we want people to come and join us who, who think that as part of a bigger group with more resources that they can do something game-changing and that the, they want to get the, the learnings from people who are in a similar boat where, you know, we have tons of entrepreneurs now in the group who have been in the same situation that I've been in or I'm currently in and I can learn from them and that's already helping me accelerate. And so there's just a bit more um, diversity already of the, of the types of people in our group and the, the, the business itself, because it has this premium side, it has super big uh, portfolios with really interesting IP. And of course now a burgeoning mobile and free-to-play business that is just getting started. And I think like personally, I think this sort of a lack of strong central organization is actually something that helps to keep the founders for a longer time. Because oftentimes you see founders exiting after the two to three years earn out because they sell their company and they end up in a totally different company where they kind of own something, but it's not really what they set up to do. It's not really their business anymore. It's totally different and, and they end up going. But in this case, you guys still have the autonomy. You're still running your own businesses. You're kind of figuring out the ways to grow together. And, um, and there's plenty of capital to, to allow you to do almost anything as long as it makes sense. And as long as you can get other founders to kind of join on this, on, on the quest. So I, I understand that like sometimes there's just been criticism for the lack of central org for, I don't know, for Embracer, but at least for Stillfront. But I think the, the, the positive side is just understanding what kind of organization these are. They, they are driven by entrepreneurs. And for them, in order to keep an entrepreneur in your organization, you have to give them almost full autonomy. That's, that's yeah. really the way. Yeah, they need to feel like they're in control. And, yeah. and the way that you would then align, you know, without a big central team to, like, to manage the day-to-day, the, -day, yeah. um, the way that we get people to, 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 do, to be aligned in terms of uh, what the long-term is, is to, to create the right incentive structure. So if you look at all the deals that we've done, many of them are basically like mergers Mm -hmm. where they become shareholders of Embracer. So they're happy when one of the other teams is doing very successful and vice versa. Also, they are very long. Like I said, my deal is, is basically seven year earnout, which is pretty unusual for the industry. But it also means that I'm not thinking about, you know, the next quarter or the next day. And Lars, the CEO, is still the majority shareholder of the company. So I think that's also very unique where he's aligned in the exact same way that I am. So he's a big shareholder and I'm a big shareholder. Uh, he started the company when he was 16 and has been wow. continued to run it since then. So he's an entrepreneur just like the rest of us. Yeah. And he's not, you know, he, he, he's made lots of money. Uh, he's not in it for, for, you know, just to, as like professional CEO come in to yeah. just maximize share, shareholder uh, stock price. Uh, he's in it to build something uh, for the industry. You know, he really sees himself as an ambassador for the industry. 
and he's trying to just create a structure that allows the the you know this the most fantastic talent to be successful that's amazing um yeah and, and we had Lars on this podcast before so people can go back in the, in the list and listen through that and you were there as well so there's a plenty plenty more information on how embracer works um ken i want to thank you for for jumping in on the podcast and explaining how deca works and and especially giving kind of like more details on on the mobile division of embracer group so as last words do you have certain openings certain uh things that that people can connect with you or or with deca games yeah definitely you know we are a distributed team and we have lots of roles open uh so if you're a studio that that finds embracer interesting please connect with me uh on linkedin can go or ken at decagames.com and if you have products that you think would be better run by a, a pure play live ops team also feel free to contact me as well and if you're looking for a new job <laughs> check out our, our career site please awesome check check those one ones out i'll put in links in the description below so click click or tap tap and um, you'll find all the information there thank you guys for listening and thank you ken for for joining the podcast again Thanks a lot.